Welcome to Almost Cooperstown. I'm Mark. And this is Gordon. And we love talking about baseball. This week was actually a pretty interesting week because we saw what was both a simultaneous example of, I guess, what some would consider somewhat savvy base running and one of the worst defensive plays of all times in the Cubs game, Pirates game this week with Javi Baez. And yeah, is, do you think it was savvy on, on Baez's part or did he get away with it? Which is it? Well, I guess the problem is it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem because it's only a savvy base running move as far as the guy making the boneheaded play makes it a savvy base running move. Like him turning around and running away from first base back to home is only savvy because the guy actually chased him. So why don't you recount the play a little bit just sort of, you know, to make sure everybody understands. what. So so to give the key details here, um, I don't remember the particular inning or exactly how many men on base, but I can tell you this. There were. There's a guy on third. There's two outs. Javi Baez is at bat. Javi Baez hits a weak little ground ball, the first base. The first baseman picks it up. Uh, do you happen to remember the first baseman's name? I'm blanking on it right now. Uh, Tyler. Well, it's fair. first of all, I'm pretty sure it was Contreras who was on base. And Contreras he's, is on base at third. He's on second, though. He's on, he's on second, second. two outs. So, um, and Will Craig, I'm sorry, was the first baseman. So, so Baez hits a little tapper down the first baseline with two outs. Will Craig fields the ball. And then for some inexplicable reason, Baez is running down the first baseline. He kind of stops and like sees that Craig is coming towards him. So he starts backing up and like running back towards home plate. Now, Craig is off the base. He's not like right next to the base at this point. He's come down the line. Right. But all he has to do is touch first base and the inning is over. There are two outs. But for reasons that will likely never be fully explained, he decides the only course of action he can take is to chase Javi Baez down the first baseline and try him tag him out. So while this is going on, Wilson Contreras comes around third base, comes around third base, coming from second, and just starts coming home and scores. Now, now while, Wilson Contreras is a catcher and and certainly not known for his blazing speed. <laughs> so I mean that in and of itself is. It's something of a, a savvy base running move that right. Will Contreras recognized that he could get home in that situation. So good on him, good on the third base coach that sent him because that is probably actually more intelligent base running than anything else that happened over at first base. Well, certainly more than Baez's, you know, uh, play, which he just kind of, you know, out of opportunity because the guy was making the wrong play. He just continued down the wrong path because it ended up being the right path. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Like it, it was a, it would only became a genius decision after the fact. Right. When, when Craig didn't go back to the base, like, well, if he's going to chase me back to home plate, I'll run here. And then as he turned on to go back up towards first base, uh, you know, Contreras. And I wonder if, if Craig was trying to keep his eye on Contreras, maybe coming around third by not going back but, to the base. But there's two outs. I there's understand that he base. obviously doesn't. All he ever had to do yeah. was touch first base and the innings over. You know, so that was that was the just it was it was one of the most inexplicable plays I've ever seen in baseball. And it's the kind of thing that if it used to be around the sports center, not top 10, that should be up there as number one for an eternity in eclipse of the butt fumble. But you know, it's one, not as flashy a play as that. 
Right, right, right. And one of, one of the things about the way baseball is today uh, compared to the years of, I think we've talked about seasoning that players would get formally by being in the minor leagues for a bunch of years is there was a better chance, you might think, of those players having experienced things like that and having understanding what to do in the situation better than a younger player who might have come up and just obviously made the wrong play. This guy's going to have to live this down his whole career, which is, you know, kind of awful. It's brutal. Like, you're stuck. This is not going to follow you until you do something thing else that's of bigger note than that. And, and Sony made the point that, you know, Baez, when someday when he gets traded, right, and he comes back to the Cubs, that's the play they're going to put up on the scoreboard that defined his Cub career. Exactly. That's going to be his biggest Cub memory was somehow that. But players um, don't players don't know exactly what it is. I mean, it's hard to believe as a fan and watching the game going, how could he not notice to touch first base? Um, it's, 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 it is hard to believe this is a professional baseball player. You think they would know that, but you know, they don't, they don't look at the rules obviously and understand the game as well as they should. That seems to be clear. But it did. It was interesting to me because I was thinking about, you know, that play and what it meant and how both of those guys that were involved in that play, Javi Baez and Wilson Contreras are not known as the fastest guys around. Certainly not Contreras, but right. Base running is kind of interesting because you don't necessarily need to be fast to be a great base runner. There's guys that have gotten lots of steals in a season that we know were terrible base runners. And when you say lots of steals, you mean like, you know, 15 or 20 from a guy who is. Oh, no. I remember Roger Cedeno. Yeah, he was fast, though. He was fast, but he was not a smart base runner. Nobody stole 66 bases one year. Right, Right. But that's what's interesting about base running is that you could have a guy that steals 66 base, bases a year not actually be that great a base runner. And you could have a guy like Keith Hernandez who didn't steal that many bases, who was a very intelligent base runner. So so let, let's talk about Keith because, you know, he's, he's one of my faves. And, and I went looking for, like, this evidence that, you know, I remember Keith Hernandez as being a good base runner, a very good base runner for a guy who didn't have speed. Right? And That's it's, the and important it's, thing. And this is something that is hard when you have this discussion because, unfortunately, you kind of have to discount the early era of baseball because before about, like, 54, there's not a lot of statistics they kept on base running. Like, you had stolen bases, and that was basically mm. like they Because they didn't think of it that way. You didn't have this metric-driven approach to the game, so you don't have a lot of the little things that would tell you other than which guys were really fast. So, in, in the case of Keith... He is, um, I may not be aware, um, on the docket to be elected to the Cardinal Hall of Fame. You know, and, and as Met fans, we, we you know, love his con- contribution to the Mets and he's in the booth now and all that. But he played nine years and won an MVP, uh, a co-MVP with Willie Stargell in 79 with the Cardinals. And, and so what I saw in his background is he's third all time in base running for the Cardinals in terms of, you know, the, the, the metrics they use to, to rate good base runners. And that really surprised me because the Cardinals obviously been around a super long time. And they've, they've had, had a couple blue Brock and Vince yeah. Coleman, you know, take those two guys to start. Uh, and those actually are the two guys ahead of him, but Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee, all these other guys who were known as fast players and good base runners, supposedly uh, Hernandez was higher rated than them. And I thought that was really interesting. That was the only statistic I could come up with because there's nothing in his med career that came out. Right. And I think it, it, you come up with an interesting question of, do you need to be able to steal bases to be a good base runner? 
Uh, the the by, by metrics now the answer is no they that that's not the, the the metric that only metric it certainly is helpful and then we talk about your um, your success rate and, and and we can get into all that but taking the extra base is one of the things that I I found is what you rate a um, a really good base runner so one of the worst base runners of all time supposedly uh, and this comes from 2017 uh, was Victor Martinez right Vmart really. Mm-hmm professional major league hitter and and came up as a catcher and played first base and everybody knows he wasn't fast but he only took the extra base seven percent of the time that's okay. just like that which shows that there were so many bases that that guy left that he could have taken that same year kiermeyer of the rays you know, the rays at that point took the extra base 77 percent of the time billy hamilton who was still playing believe it or not connie la Russa found a use for him when uh when robert got hurt uh he's playing for the for the white sox 66 percent took the extra base compared to seven percent seven percent i mean <laughs> that means you're basically a, a statue <laughs> Right. And so I went looking to try and like try and find something that could really quantify, like if we're going to talk about some of the best base runners of all time, because while I think you can be a good base runner without necessarily stealing a lot of bases, I feel like it would be difficult to break into the upper echelon of best base runners without being able to steal bases because all of those guys that can steal that they could steal bases and be savvy base runners at the same time where Keith, he could be a savvy base runner, but as hard as he tried, he could never be a guy that stole 60 plus bases. No, no, no. At, at a time when people did it, by the way, too, you have to right. think about eras and, and that was the time. Um, and those Cardinal teams uh, that he played on, we've talked about a number of times with McGee, um, even with Tommy Hurd, those guys all could run. Uh, and they did run, you know, Coleman stealing 110 bases. But the thing about it, it would be when you watch those games at that time about good base running and, and how you think about baseball, uh, with the threat of the steal being so much more than today. I mean, I guess Whit Merrifield and Mondesi of the Royals are two of the best base dealers out there right now. Um, but anytime those guys got on base, right, if it was McGee or Coleman, and you, it was like a walking double. So, yes. so the pressure you felt was so different than I think than what you feel right now. And I think that has a couple things to do with one catcher pop times. I'm not sure if they're better, but I feel like catchers, certainly their arm strength and ability to get the ball to second base has improved over time. And with pitchers throwing harder and harder and harder on a consistent basis, it's got to be an easier to steal on like an 85 to 90 mile an hour fastball than it is to steal on a 95 to 100 mile an hour fastball. That's just that extra. You're going to get to the second, but you get, you get that much little extra time to get to the base compared to what you have to do now. And I mean, it doesn't do anything because look at Syndergaard. Syndergaard throws like 100 miles an hour and guys steal like him on crazy right? because right. he, he's so slow to home plate. But what's happened is, is that people have done the math. And unless you are an elite base stealer, it's probably not worth it for you to go because making it out there is less valuable than getting to second base in a lot of these cases now. I, I, yeah, I, I, and I think that the, again, the, the home run is worth more, right? So if you get you hit the ball with a fence, you got two runs instead of taking the chance on the guy getting thrown out trying to steal second. Um, right. And a guy like Merrifield, who is a really good base runner as well as being a really good base dealer, right? He's both of yes. those things. Um, he, you know, is, his success rate is really high. So they're encouraging him to run more now. I mean, you should run into where your success rate starts 
you know, going down at this point. If you're going to be yeah, successful now, 80% or more of the time, you should be running more. You should be running fairly consistently because it does put a lot of pressure on the defense and the pitcher if they know that, oh, man, I have Whit Merrifield up first this game. And if I walk him, I'm basically putting him on second base. So, you know, and, and you're making the good point, I think, of distinguishing between what is a base stealer and a good base runner. Um, mm-hmm. it, when when a, a place like Sportster, you know, went back and started rated the top base dealers in Major League history, this is going back a few years. But everybody on the list that I saw, I mean, it, it, number twenty was Ichiro. Um, Ichiro actually had fifty six stolen bases in, you know, in in the Major League. So. But he was not he was not always a guy that I remember stealing a lot right. of bases. He wasn't. He a big, Barry Bonds was in there. Right. So Barry Bonds also was a 40, 40 guy and had 514 stolen bases. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know that steroids had anything to do with him stealing any bases, by the way. No, because um, I think that was mostly for the Pirates, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was before he got to the Giants for sure. Um, you know, and, and in, in this list of all guys that you would think are stolen, Reyes, Carl Crawford, Ozzie Smith, Maury Wills, stolen bases, Juan Pierre. Listen to these names, right? Otis mm-hmm. Nixon, stolen bases, Kenny Lofton, Willie Wilson. So they don't, these aren't great base runners necessarily. They're first great base dealers who are probably really good base runners, too. Now, I found an interesting article from Bleacher Report that was talking about the best base runners in Major League Baseball. Now, it's from about a decade ago, so it's a little outdated at this point. But I think at least from a historical perspective, there's not a lot of guys that would have played in the last decade that come to mind that would have supplanted a lot of these guys on this list. Now, I like some aspects on this list because they kind of break it across four different categories. Stolen base percentage, which I think makes a lot of sense. One that I'm not as big a fan of here is run scoring percentage, the percentage of the time that a base runner eventually scored a run. Because I feel like while that is somewhat indicative of your base your base running ability, that's as much based on the offense you're playing in as anything else. That's if you're a leadoff hitter for a really good team, you're going to score more often than a leadoff hitter for a really bad team because you wouldn't be a bad you wouldn't be on a bad team if you scored all the time. <laughs> now, I do like the next one, which is uh, extra per, extra bases taken percentage because mm-hmm. that's going to show how often they're able to advance more than one base on a single or two bases on a double. That's the Victor Martina versus Kevin Kiermaier's <laughs> right. difference. And then one which is interesting is this guy, this the person that wrote this article, um, uh, Cliff Eastham, added in, he invented kind of his own statistic, double-triple percentage, which is the total number of doubles and triples that that player hit divided by their total number of hits, which I thought was actually an interesting way because that would show who was a good base runner more often than not because somebody that ekes out doubles and triples where there wouldn't have normally been them would show up in a statistic like that. Right. So he put together this list and you actually have named a bunch of the guys that were on this list and it's, you're going to hear them all. And so number 10 is actually a, a Met. It's Jose Reyes. Right. Right. Because for him, he's a guy that, 80% stolen base percentage. He took the extra base 50% of the time. And he actually on this list is the highest guy with 24% of his hits being doubles and triples. You know, so he the, was a guy that with, with, with Reyes also, and you could see it on the field, right? When you watched him run, um, watching him go first to home was one of the most exciting plays in baseball. We don't see that enough today, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's interesting. I thought that was just so interesting because the guy that's right behind him, that number nine or right in front of him at number nine is another we've talked about the fly in Hawaiian Shane Victorino and people I think don't remember him being one of the fastest players in the major leagues when he was playing for a while. Mm-hmm. And he was 
pretty much identical stats to Reyes. 79% stolen base percentage, 52% extra base percentage, 23% double triple percentage. So like he is right there in line with him in terms of the statistics. So that would be the kind of discussion then to me came down to which player's base running savviness did you appreciate more? Um, but you, you know, you're going to have a lot of like, then we get into some two guys that I don't know particularly well. And I'm guessing you're going to be like, Oh, I don't know these guys. <laughs> Well, this guy actually couldn't have been a major leaguer because he only played nine seasons, and that's Ron LaFleur. Um, a Hall of Famer, you mean? Yes, he couldn't have been a Hall of Famer because he only played nine seasons. But he led the leagues in stolen bases twice and in runs scored. So this guy was a base-running threat, even though he didn't actually play that long. Right, right. Uh, a Tiger, Ron LaFleur, uh, as I recall. And, yep. uh, yeah, had a, an interesting background, kind of overcame some stuff to play in the major leagues. Um, you know, was a good player and had, a, I guess, a few years. I don't even know statistically, but then, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's actually impressive considering he had 455 career stolen bases in nine seasons. That, that's more than I would have would have thought. Nine, he had he led the league with 97 stolen bases in 1980. Wow. He only got caught stealing 19 times. It's pretty good. Yeah, like, like you could, so then, but then the next guy is somebody I think we have talked about before, but I can't be sure. Is Richie Ashburn? Yeah, Richie Ashburn played for the Phillies, most notably. Uh, he is a Hall of Famer, actually. He is a Hall of Famer. Played nineteen seasons and, and an original Met. You may not know. Um, so at the end of his career, he played for the Mets in '62. And Richie Ashburn was—I uh, would have not thought of him as at that time as having a lot of stolen bases. So that might be interesting to look at him, just in terms of why he was determined to be such a good uh, base runner. Well, he stole 234 bases in his career, which is not that many. It was that time, though. Probably at that time, it was a lot. Yeah, he only got. Yeah, and he was caught stealing uh, 117 times in that in that period. So Mm -hmm. he so he was not the but he was a guy that scored all the time. He was somebody that made sure. So he was somebody that took the extra base 53 percent of the time. So he was somebody that maybe wasn't necessarily stealing the most amount of bases, but he was somebody that was consistently finding ways to stretch out his hits into bigger hits and score because of them. I I really like the extra base taking the extra base step because that goes away from what we normally look at, like you said, in stolen bases. And and frankly, if Ashburn were to be rated on his stolen base prowess, I, it sounded like he, he was successful about two-thirds of the time, which by today's standards is not good at all. It's pretty yeah, yeah. You would not send somebody that was successful as much as unsuccessful as much as he was in this modern day. But then once you kind of get past that, you get into guys that kind of expect to be there, like Tim Raines. Yeah, right. Right, he was on my list too. Like, but yeah, of course, Tim Raines. Yeah, he's one of the greatest base dealers of all time. Uh, and I guess he was a great base runner too. Yeah, yeah. He stole. Oh, I mean, Tim Raines had 808 steals in his career and only got caught 146 times. Yeah, that'll work. That'll that'll work. And he also took the extra base. Uh, let's see here. Tim Raines took the extra base 50 percent of the time. You, um, or I'll let you finish. I'm, I'm, it makes me think of a question about guys that don't um, that that don't have uh, that many stolen bases, but have these really high extra base percentages. That would be interesting to look at to see because that would probably tell you who are the savviest base right, runners, right? Because they're guys that shouldn't be stretching hits out, and that's what I kind of come back to with like like the core thesis is that you can be a good base runner without being particularly fast, but you'll never be a great or an all time base runner without being fast, just because the guys that are fast can make all those same decisions as you 
but they can actually do it more often and have more impact as a result. Completely. And, and, you know, we see it happen, not just, you know, that, actually the play we started the, the podcast with was a fielding mishap more than it was a base running, you know, unless you give uh, Contreras credit for coming all the way around third and scoring from second on a ball that didn't get past the pitcher. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is still set, which is savvy base running as part of it. But, you know, it is the kind of thing where it's hard to like, it, there's a, the problem with base running, especially savvy base running is it's almost impossible to quantify. Like, where a fielding, where a error on the fielder's judgment in play leads to the extra base versus the hitter's ability to recognize it. Uh, so I think one of the more interesting things also is when you're looking at it, is that so many examples of really bad base running and like recent examples. Like I think like literally just yesterday, Gary Sanchez just looked very dumb after he hits the thing. Yeah, he hits the ground ball. Guy throws it to first. Now, what's interesting about this is, one, it's Gary Sanchez running, so I can't imagine it was normally going to be a particularly close play at first base, but the guy (laughs) makes the error, and Sanchez takes a wide turn coming around first. I'm going to go to second, and he has the Little League nightmare where the ball just ricochets right back to the guy. You know, the ball just bounces off the the wall, comes straight back to the first baseman, and then he's just dead to rights between first and second at this point he's got no shot it was just like ooh, it's a bit unlucky but it's also a bit of bad base run like like i have i, I don't know where i rank that in terms of total bad base yeah, running yeah. like you have to make the decision to make the turn before you know where the ball is bouncing i think a lot of times players um are, are can be confused by what they think they saw and they they don't run you know uh, the way they would. Uh, if you think about um, uh, one of the plays that I remember in the, from the World Series Mets versus Yankees in 2000, um, so the Mets uh, brought up a guy in September, Timo Perez, mm-hmm. who ended up playing for the team in the World Series. And in Game One um, of the World Series, um, ball goes you know deep to left, and Timo thinks it's a home run, and uh, he he thinks he's you know can just kind of run around the bases, you know, but it's not. And then he tries to pick up the pace, come around third base and gets thrown out at home plate in a game that went to extra innings. The Mets lost four to three. Uh, and, and if he had just run game. it hard. Yep. Yep. Had he just run it hard. So that that's more, you know, they said it's a bad base running play. Obviously he didn't recognize. So you're supposed to run hard if you're not sure. And he thought he was sure. Well, what's even more confusing is that he knew the ball was in the air. So he also wasn't tagging. He was just running. Right, right. Um, and, and so, you know, you can make bad plays, bad mental plays. And we talked about, um, uh, on this podcast, uh, the, the, one of the greatest baseball player of all time, people would say Babe Ruth, um, mm-hmm. getting, getting thrown out, trying to steal second for the last out of the 1926 world series against the Cardinals, which, which by all modern baseball, modern metrics is like the worst thing that you could possibly do is get thrown out at second base to end the game. Right, right. It's a, and today that'd be like, you know, but I guess it was Babe Ruth, and and so right. But like you would some even, heat, I guess. I, w- I wouldn't even send Whit Merrifield to the <laughs> second base in the ninth inning of the World Series. Um, and a Cardinal uh, who was a former Cardinal now, Colton Wong, now with the Brewers uh, in the World Series in 2013, got picked off to end Game Four of the World Series. That would have to go down as a bad base running play, right? Yeah, getting well, like yeah, especially because getting picked off is such a rare thing. Like it's not like something where people regularly get picked off of first base or whatever. Like especially in a postseason game, but to get picked off first base to 
end a World Series game is just right. Well, and, and, and it's it gets a little worse when you get into the uh, nitty gritty here because they were down four to two. So if you're down yeah. four to three, trying to steal to get that tying run to second base, like, okay, at least I can understand right. why you were doing because you're also probably thinking like, oh man, if this guy hits a deep double, I can score from first, but. The only way you tie that game is if the guy at the plate hits the ball out of the park. So and, you're irrelevant at first base. Right. And and oddly enough, uh, so Koji Uhura was the uh, the Red Sox closer at the time and a lefty, right, uh, mm-hmm. as, I, as I recall. So, again, the whole thing about a lefty having a pickup point. So he was already, you know, had a guy who was, you know, was looking at him when he's standing on the mound. And the Cardinals lost that game and they lost every other game. They lost the World Series. Not that that was the, the catalyst, but it sure didn't help. It sure didn't help because that's the kind of that's the kind of thing where you're just like you can't help but think in the back of your mind it's not our year. So uh, as as we do our tour of New York, um, you may be uh, familiar with A Rod's glove slap in the uh, ALCS in 2004. Yeah, yeah, right, but that's an interesting one where people, is that a smart base running play? I, I think it's Schrodinger's smart base running play, where it's both <laughs> the smart base running play and a very dumb one simultaneously because. Like, I understood what he was going for. I just, he's not allowed to do that. But, like, <laughs> it's a smart baseball play because that was the only way the guy was going to be safe. <laughs> now, now, not not being a big Yankee fan myself, um, and, 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 but I was uh, living in Los Angeles uh, when the Yankees were in the World Series in the late 70s. Um, and, and so uh, Reggie Jackson had the three home run game and all the, but what else he did, um, I believe it was in one of those two series, 77, 78, is on a line drive um, to, to right field, Reggie Jackson's on first and he's running and he sees the ball coming i guess it's softness so he kind of turns his hip and lets the ball i didn't let it hit him because he would have been out so I'm, tr- I'm trying to think what he did is uh, uh, i don't know if he deked somebody but he did something that people was were really upset about now i'm getting the play wrong because obviously had he been hit by the ball the batter ball he would have been, been out yeah right, right. um but, but, there's, very, but you've seen plenty of guys essentially use their body as a screen like right. you see that all the time go from a guy going second to third he'll screen the shortstop for like a half second and then continue on his way to third and you see that mess with fielders all the time. It wasn't it wasn't a batted ball. It was a throw in the field. Oh. And, and he moved his hip um, and, and into, you know, the, the play and hip no way. And it is the 1978 World Series. Uh, and, and so that base running play, they say, swung the 1978 World Series in favor of the Yankees. And that, to me, was a smart base running play, even though people hated right, it. Right, because... Th- Oh, I mean, yeah, people hate it, but that's just being smart. Like, I think people it probably would have been because the thing is, is that wasn't like he didn't do necessarily a baseball thing. Sticking out your hip really doesn't require you to do much. It wasn't like he stuck out his hand and tried to, like, interfere with the ball. You know, I, I think that would, right. I think people would perceive it differently. If he had, like, reached out and tried to, like, smack the ball out of the air, people wouldn't perceive that the same as sticking your hip out as you're running. Cause that's the same way as kind of leaning into the pitch. Now that helped the Yankees uh, win that world series. Now, as I find out later rule 7.09 F says a base runner cannot intentionally interfere with a thrown ball. Did he simply hold his ground or flex his thigh muscle? <laughs> right. Right. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it a smart baseball play that is that stuff. he knew the rule enough that that's what he could get away with the same way. You're supposed to try and make an effort to get out of a way of a pitched ball. And you have to make the cursory effort to do so. Like you see the curveball coming in, you kind of just like twist your back to it. So it just gets you in the back. You're like, well, I kind of tried to move. It's give me first base. <laughs> so, so you made um, in, in our sixth greatest uh 
plays, a Hall of Fame plays uh, podcast, one of the first ones we did, um, you, I think, led with the flip. Yes. Right? So so now you've got a player who's running the bases on that flip who contributed to a degree to that play because what didn't that player do? He didn't slide. Yes, you're right. He did because if he had slid, I think Giambi's safe at home. Right, right. So is that a bad base running play? I, 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 a part of me doesn't want to punish Giambi for not anticipating Jeter making maybe the most heads up baseball play of all time, because in any other circumstance, that's not an issue because you're never expecting a guy to come in and redirect the throw at that depth. So he's just assuming he's safe. Now, what does that teach? What does that mean? You're probably teaching all your kids now just slide every single time. Right, right, right. And, and, and we, we, and we didn't really talk much about this, you know, before, but you know, the idea that guys have sliding pads for years when they, you know, years ago they didn't. I wonder how much that took away from guys even trying to do things on the bases. Because basically, when I when I was a kid learning, they had you slide every time. You never didn't slide. And then over the years, that's kind of changed a little bit, and people don't always slide, as evidenced by Giambi on that play. And it's interesting because people, you know, guys have the sliding glove to protect their hands, but interestingly. I think they've done the studies on it. It's actually faster to slide feet first than head yeah. first. Yeah. And safer, but, certainly. Oh, safer yeah. That's what I mean. For, for, the, for, the, for the player, not so much for the fielder. No, the fielder's in more danger because you're going feet in instead of hands. But right. my guess is guys want to go hands in because it allows them to be more targeted and you can mm-hmm. slide away from the bag more because it's easier to reach your hand out than try and, like, reach your leg out. But – but when you do that, and, and, and guys, the way that they're running the bases now, and it happened in, in a Met game this week, both VR and DeGrom got thrown out um, by coming off the base on a either an extra base or a – it wasn't a steal in DeGrom's camp. It, it was in Villar um, mm-hmm. because they popped off the base before they tried to re-grab it as they were sliding at such a velocity that they couldn't stop. And so that seems to be happening more than ever, that the players are keeping the tag on and umpires are calling guys out. And now we go to replay and we can find that, oh, the guy did come off the base, whereas before he would have never been called out. Right, which which I wonder is how much of that is specifically born out of the knowledge that there is the replay. So 100%. now the so now the fielders know it is worth sticking with that tag because that guy might pop up. And I bet it would be the kind of thing where if guys have been doing it the past 40 years and holding the tag and we had replay, there would have been a whole lot of guys that got thrown out, uh, you know, after they went back to the replay because they just never bothered checking for it. Right. Right. So I want to talk about another play. And you know this from from uh, playing baseball. Um, it's called a deke. Right. So you did a lot of deking as a pitcher, trying to pick guys off and having I think you, you guys said you had like 15 pickoff plays. The, the point is, is that baseball is one of the few sports, right, where trying to fake out the guy by making believe the throw is coming to you to get a guy, you know, to do something. So in the World Series in 91, um, the famous uh, Jack Morris World Series, where you pitched a one nothing game seven, Lonnie Smith, you know, really good ball player, played for a whole lot of teams, um, got deep basically on 
on a ball laced to left center field. And he was going to come home from first base to break this scoreless tie, except he loses track of the ball and is faked out by the middle infielders, Knobloch and Greg Gangy, who feigned turning a double play. He stops running to locate the ball and was unable to score. And the Twins win the series clincher game seven. That, that reminds me of the brilliant Ichiro play from a couple of years ago. So Ichiro was playing, I want to say, for either the Marlins against the Giants or for the Giants. I'm pretty sure it's for the Marlins in McCovey Park uh, or in in that in their uh, in, in the an at t whatever it was called. Then, yeah. So he's playing right field. The guy is on uh, second base, batters up, batter hits an absolute bomb to right center field. Ichiro just kind of casually drifts back like he's catching a routine fly ball. And at the last second, turns around and feels the ball off the wall. And he completely fools the base runner into thinking he's about to make the catch. So the guy can only go from second to third instead of scoring like he normally would have been able to. Because Ichiro just acted like he was fielding a routine fly ball up until the very last moment. And completely deeks the runner. Right. So that was an end. Runners can be fooled is what you're saying. And it happens a lot. Oh, Totally. Like when, when I was a kid now, now the thing is, is you see a lot more pickoff plays at a, at a younger level because right. they're going to work more often. Guys are like, I remember we, we had a ton of different pickoff plays where like the shortstop would flash in and then the second baseman, then you like, as he backs out, the second baseman would come in and you throw because kids were just basically like, Oh, the first guy moved. I can now take, extend my lead. And then you catch them when their body weight shift in the other direction. As you get older, you just don't do that stuff. And interestingly, what I do remember is all of our pickoff plays were based around pickoff plays at second base, mm-hmm. which you almost never see at the major league level. Guys never throw to second base. I, I don't know what the exact reasoning is for it. I think because making a mistake throwing the ball to second base is a lot more punishing than making the ball making a mistake throwing the ball to first. Like if you mm. throw the ball by the first baseman, he's probably getting to second, maybe to third. If you throw the ball past the guy at second base, depending on where your center fielder is, especially with the shift, the shift also impacts your ability to do this. But you might be throwing the ball into the outfield, and that guy is scoring. And and, so, and, and the amateur level, you'll see this happen a lot, a lot more often than you would at, at any professional level. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. And then third base, nobody really like. You would actually have more designed catcher throws at the low level, right, at the low right. level I was playing at, compared to actual pickoff attempts at third base. Nobody threw to third base. Because, again, you make a mistake going to third, the guy scores guaranteed. The, and it makes me think also of at, at the at the amateur levels versus the pro level, even there, the hidden ball trick, which should never work. But when you watch it sometimes, I, I, I notice that players, even at the major league level, don't always watch the ball go back to the pitcher as they're dusting themselves off after a pickoff throw. And I'm thinking – just- Who's watching? I hope the first base coach is watching and saying, don't go anywhere, stay on the base. You know, he hasn't thrown the ball back yet, but you'd think it would work more often because there's all kinds of fakes you could run. I think the thing with the hidden ball trick is the hidden ball trick, essentially, it's unsporting from the degree of it works off of disrupting the accepted flow of the baseball game. The only really way the hidden ball trick works is that you're playing a 162-game season. And in game 134, you're not thinking about the guy playing the hidden ball trick. So you just get up off the bag and go back because you're really going to run the hidden ball trick on me kind of deal almost. Like, guys, don't expect it. So it's like I think that's the kind of thing where it's like the hidden ball trick is probably – one of the more memorable baseball plays because it's something that exists entirely outside the scope of the rest of the game. You know, if it's you like can the only swing, play in baseball that's like it. If you can swing on a 3-0 pitch, I'm sorry, you can run the hidden ball trick. Oh, I, I am totally in favor of running the hidden ball trick. But one, I think 
when it doesn't work, you look really dumb. <laughs> right, right. And and when you think about, you know, this season uh, in the major leagues, there's a, a run scoring, you know, issue, right? We're not, we're not having a lot of runs comparatively, batting averages are lower. You would think that would heighten the importance of base running. I think you're right. I think you're going to see an increase in people's I wouldn't be surprised if there's some team that goes like, okay, I don't think this hitting thing is going away this year. Like, I don't think suddenly major league hitters in the month of June are going to be like, oh yeah, we sucked the first two months of the season and hit like a collective, like two thirty something, but now we're going to turn it into two eighty hitters collectively the rest of the year. So we can raise that. I think this is here to stay this year until they change the balls. So I think there's going to be some team, some team that's like, okay, we're going to like 2002 angels. This we're going to go first to third. We're going to steal a lot of bases because manufacturing runs will become more important, especially in the postseason because guys aren't hitting the baseball with a fame authority that they used to do. And that, that all plays into what we talk about with the shift, right? Why we don't believe that the shift should be eliminated. Uh, and we're already seeing, you know, evidence this season of guys starting to hit the ball into those holes and taking advantage of those situations. And and, and that's, and, that's all going to play into the, the same thing. And that's going to be the response that guys are going to be like, okay, you know what? The three true outcome stuff isn't necessarily worth it when I could get a hit and extend my team's inning because they're just giving me a base hit. Like, and, 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 and these exactly. guys are good. Take these it. guys, are, these guys are good enough that if Michael Conforto wants to, he could just hit that ball through that third base hole a lot of the time. And right. the problem is, is that when is it right to give up on your at bat in order to do that when you could potentially hit a home run? So you know he he sends you a pitch where you could try and knock it through that hole, and you probably could, or you could try and drive the ball and hit a double. What are guys going to do a lot of the time? I think they're going to try and hit that double, but I think you're going to see more and more guys just taking that single and being like, you know what, keep keep this train rolling. One of the big things that I think uh, I, I hear from from play older players that aren't playing anymore that look back and say the big changes in, in baseball are with two strikes. You don't see players shorten up or try to hit the ball. They actually take the same swing a lot of times with two strikes that they take with zero and one strike. And that is certainly a big change that you don't talk about too much in baseball. Part of that, I think, is that you have more pitchers that can throw whatever pitch they want on whatever count they want. So you have guys now that are like, look, if I try and shorten up my swing, you're facing Jacob deGrom. It's like, okay, well, he's going to throw 102 or he's going to throw like a nasty 91 mile an hour slider and shorten up doesn't do anything against that. So rather than alter your swing, it's probably better to just keep swinging like you consistently do to try and maintain that like level that you're consistently at rather than being like, okay, I'm going to just shorten up and try and make contact. Do you think that, um, okay, so baseball came to this season after a pandemic season, and I think everybody's still adjusting to playing a full season. Guys are getting hurt all over the place. We, we've seen all this. To, you can't really transition to be a better base running team within the season. Is it something you should have done in spring training or it, it be sort of at an organizational level? It has to be at an organizational level because you have to value players and get players that can take advantage of good base running. Because you could have a guy that's a really smart, savvy base runner on your team, but if he's slow as molasses, it doesn't matter. Like if, if he doesn't get that many opportunities to take the extra base or score when he shouldn't, how valuable is that guy's good base running? You need to, or like, and that's what I think you had like with the 2015, 2016 Royals. They looked at their team and said, we're not going to compete by signing the biggest and strongest hitters that hit a ton of home runs. We need to get guys that 
can do all of those little things organizationally and make an organizational and a team effort to be aligned around those principles. So I think pivoting within a season is probably pretty hard, but over the course of a year or two, you could probably make enough changes to be like, okay, we're going to go for this style now. My impression is, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that when you get to the playoffs, um, sort of like in hockey, right? You, you, you can play a wide open style all season in hockey, and then in the playoffs, hockey games are much tighter, they're defensive, you, every shift matters. In baseball, in the playoffs, you see more evidence, do you think, of, and I think, I think yes, of, of, you know, the little things that make baseball really great. You know, it's more because everything is heightened. Well, everything is heightened. You're also only playing with the best teams, which means generally only the best pitchers are in the game. So immediately that put runs at a premium, which Great means point. manufacturing runs becomes much more valuable because you're gonna you're not gonna face Joey Lucchese in a playoff game. You're gonna get three or four starters that are all really good. You're only going to see their best relievers and the teams that have made it there. You, you don't see a lot of offensive juggernaut teams make the postseason and make a deep run. Well, and, and the Yankees, you know, strike me as one of those teams, right? They're just a power team. We'll just club you to death. Um, hey, and and the, twins who are, the Twins have played bad this year, right? And and and, and they were a home-running hit, hitting team, and it's not so much home runs this year, and that could be one of the reasons why they're not. Their pitching has been terrible, actually. It's the real reason. Well, yeah, but you look at, like, the Dodgers who won the World Series. Like, they were a team that hit a, whole, a lot of home runs, but they also did all the little things well. Yeah, in the World Series, I don't think of them as a home run hitting team. Right. You, know? you don't re- you don't remember teams winning the World Series by clubbing their opponent to death. You, it does not happen lot. that much. It's not because games are too tight. Games are too tight. Pitchers, the moment pitchers start not having it, they get replaced. They're not left out there to dry as much. And it's, like it's, get, it's hard to regular. change your style in midseason, right? If you've been a clubbing team and all of a sudden you're in the playoffs and you got to, you know, do all the little things, hit behind the runner and scratch out runs and take the extra base, it isn't easy necessarily to make that transition in, in base running. Especially if it's like all season, you've been trying to hit the ball over the fence when that guy gets on first base. It's a fifth inning, one out guy gets on first. And instead of being like, how do we manufacture a run here, even though we have an out, you're probably still hit a home run. And that's where the, it kind of comes back to, like, having guys that are smart base runners, they steal you runs in a season. And those guys will steal you runs in postseason games because they're able to see that ball is going to fall in the gap. I'm going to get an extra base out of this. Or, oh, he's not going to get there, and I know that guy doesn't have a weak – that guy has a weak arm. I'm going to score from second here when I normally shouldn't. And that's the key – of being a great base runner. And that's where like the contribution really comes from. And it's sort of, even though it's like, it's a, it's a somewhat unchanged part of the game that still affects it on such a big level. And I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the idea. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this and, and you can wrap it. Um, so one of our favorite players right now, everybody's favorite player is uh, Shoheni Otani, who mm-hmm. in addition to hitting clubbing home runs and pitching great also has seven stolen bases this season, which he is has a chance choice. to break the all time record for stolen bases in the season with a pitcher. I, and I think that's amazing that, you know, it, he, he is that capable of player. He's able to do it. And then, yeah. So just to kind of finish off the rest of that list, top five was Ricky Henderson. Yeah. He'd be a my, number one on my list every time. The only reason he wasn't number one is because he led the league getting caught in steals, uh, five different times. So he got caught stealing a lot, but he so, also has the most stolen bases bases of all time. Yeah. And then the other, uh, the rest of this list was Jimmy Rollins, mm-hmm. Kenny Lofton, mm-hmm. Willie Mays mm-hmm. and Willie Wilson. 
all all base steals. Interesting, Mays probably would be the uh, guy with the fewest stolen bases, I would think, on average of he, all of those guys. But he took the extra base the highest percentage right, of the time. Right, right. And, 63% and, of the time wow. he took the extra base. Yeah, yeah. That's the time when that probably didn't, you know, happen as much. The the amount of speed he had and the the ability he had to make the right play was remarkable when he came up in the fifties. Right, and that and that was something that he changed. And then you have guy, and then Willie Wilson. What really set him apart was his excellence in everything. He had an amazing stolen base percentage at eighty three percent, but he also took the extra base fifty three percent of the time. So the guy literally was a walking double. Yeah, he, he scored a lot and of that, runs. And that puts a lot of pressure on a team. And I think that's something that teams, I think if a team can somehow, they have the parts already and they just kind of shift their focus, that could be a dark horse team that emerges in a season like this. We'll wait and see. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Almost Cool.